0: Oh, uh, it's so cool that you have a microphone. It's very nice of you.
1: Well, I, you know, I've lis- I have listen to podcasts and when the guest doesn't have a good audio, I don't listen
0: to it. So many, so many, so many damn books. Welcome to So Many Damn Books, a blessing, a curse, a podcast. My name is Christopher and I am joined in the hi- hyperspace Zoom version of the damn library uh, with Eden Lepucki who is the author of California and Women Number no. 17, as well as the editor of Mothers Before, Stories and Portraits of Mothers as We Never Saw Them. Her writing has been in Esquire, the New York Times, the LA Times, and more. And she's here to chat about her brand new, completely exciting uh, time travel opus, Times Mouth. I'm so excited to have you here.
1: I am honored to be here.
0: It's so cool that I'm getting to talk to you about this book because I would have loved to talk to you about California or Women Number 17 as well. But Time's Mouth, um, I just love time travel novels so, so much. And uh, it made me want to make a particularly uh, specific drink. First of all, thank you so much for coming. Um, how are you? How are you this I, fine Saturday morning?
1: I'm good. Yes. We should, maybe we should tell the listeners at home that it's 9am where I am, <laughs> which is fine. I've been up for a couple hours. Uh, but I was like, is he gonna assign some gin concoction? And then <laughs> no,
0: <laughs> no, no. So all of the, so I was looking into all sorts of different things and something that I really, um, that captured my imagination, um, from an old radio lab episode that I am I was having trouble finding was the idea of high vibrational foods. Um, food that makes you, like, puts your whole, because your body is an energy current and has mm-hmm. electricity. And so this is supposed to um, make you vibrate on a higher plane. And it's things like apples, blueberries, black pepper, lemon juice. These are all, all of the ingredients in what I'm calling a time slip elixir. All of these things will bring up your vibrational energy and make you Love more it. in tune with the universe, which is, I think what you need right before you're about to time travel.
1: Yes. Yes. I, it's, I haven't, alas, I didn't make it for our get together because I had a question you have um black pepper syrup, syrup. How do you make that?
0: It's, it's like making a, a syrup with any spice Um, where I would use whole peppercorn so you don't okay. have to of double course. or triple. But you if you just use about a tablespoon for um half a cup of sugar and half a cup okay. of water, it's a regular okay. It's like a syrup. simple syrup with yeah. black pepper. Got and you it. just st- right. put the black pepper in right at the beginning and just boil that. And once and once it comes to room temperature, it's probably steeped enough for you to take the black pepper out and not get that in your drink. <laughs>
1: cool. And then if one were to spike this, what um what alcohol do you recommend
0: gin absolutely gin, gin. yeah i okay. would put gin in this if but you know one thing that about high vibrational food um <laughs> ideas is that alcohol is actually uh is going to bring down your, your vibrations vibration.
1: <laughs> okay okay But you enough. less
0: in tune with the universe so yeah, i personally i would have like this and then maybe a different cocktail after. okay I've got it got it got traveled, it you know nice. that's <laughs> All right, but yeah, noted. it really made a lovely drink. I I, I highly Ooh, it's recommend. It's pretty. Yeah, you you um smash the blueberries into the um the syrups, and it all gets really nicely mm, mixed together. Yeah. Um, all right, and, I'm gonna try it. Yeah. I had yeah.
1: almost everything. I didn't have blueberries, so I was like, oh, I'll mm. make it later. I'll make it. Sounds fun.
0: <laughs> well, it was. It's such a great book, and I'm so excited to talk to you about it. But before we get there, I do like to highlight the rampant consumerism that books inspire um, <laughs> and talk about what did you buy? Do you want me to go first and talk? About yeah, it? let
1: me hear. Let me hear what you got.
0: Yeah, I got a couple things that I'm really excited about. One is um, a novel that comes out, I think, yeah, it's it comes out in January next year from Echo. um, It's called Poor Deer by Claire Oshetsky. And it's about a a young girl with survivor's guilt, basically, as as her best friend died in an accident that she lived through. And now she's being haunted by a specter that she's named Poor Deer that seems like Mm. hell bent on reminding her of what she survived and her friend didn't. Um, And she also is like prone to fables and making up stories in her mind. So all of these are very nightmarish, uh, details that sound pretty cool to me. And then I also picked up, um, a time travel novel, a time travel classic, uh, somewhere in time by Richard Matheson. Um,
1: Oh, I've never heard of it.
0: Richard Matheson is the original author of I am legend. Um, and he is also this, this book was originally called bid time return when it came out in the seventies, but then it was made into a movie in the 80s starring Christopher Reeve. Um, and it's called Somewhere in Time, where it's about a guy who, a playwright, who falls in love with a stage actress just through her pictures of a okay. turn of the century play actress and okay. checks into a hotel and uses self hypnosis uh, to travel back to the turn of the century um, to go and meet her because Ooh, he's convinced that she's his. Okay. Mate
1: when was that published
0: 1975
1: oh okay okay
0: yeah we'll so i'm really excited out. to check it out um i i love i am legend and richard matheson is like a he's just like he gets right through to the story right away yeah, you know yeah I'm, he's I like i'm not wasting like, any time here yeah yeah um so and i love a an interesting um time travel mechanic which this one yes has. So. as do i so that's what um, i picked up what about you
1: the last book that I got was actually I don't do this very often anymore. Is I was re, I read an interview with the author, mm-hmm. and so I don't do this for nonfiction typically. I'd say, um, and I had, had not heard of the book. It's called Birth Control: The Insidious Power of Men Over Motherhood by Alison mm-hmm. Yarrow. I read an interview with her in um, on a on a Substack called Into Pursuit of clean countertops, which is about mothering. <laughs> it's by Sarah Peterson who wrote Mom Fluenced, the book not Mom Fluenced. But I thought the interview was really interesting. And um I think the subtitle is a little bit alienating, especially even for a woman, it's a little bit alienating. So I, I don't know if I would have necessarily seen it in the bookstore. It sounded a little academic to me and yeah. I would have bought it. But um, the interview was really engaging. It was just about how she interviewed a lot of women about how they have what they would call traumatic births and the way that birth has changed, you know, the history of giving birth in America and the ways that it's been medicalized or on the other side of the equation, radicalized. And I uh, have had three children. One of them was a cesarean, and two were home births. And so it's kind of a An interest of mine. Yeah. But I thought it was funny. I bought it. I'm not planning to have more kids. I sort of feel like I'm out of the having, you know, the baby conversation. So it was sort of funny that I was just compelled to go to bookshop.org and order the book. And then it arrived. And I was like, oh, my God, that was my impulse book buy that I got. (laughs) Um, But I haven't cracked it yet, but I will soon.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's the thing about what you buy is it's stuff that's just arrived. Yes. Just caught our fancy. Well, that sounds totally interesting, um, yeah, and I love you, when books come come to you through that through that way. It feels so organic when you're like you're the one who found the the um, the piece that inspires you to go get the book.
1: Yeah, and I think you know, Time's mouth came out in August, and I've done a lot of like little news, little interviews here and there. And I always wonder, I always enjoy talking to the person, and I always wonder, is this like, is this actually going to sell units? (laughs) And I try not to think like that. But so I actually felt interested. And I said, you know, I'm going to support this author. Mm. And I think I am a good reader for this book. So, you know, and I snagged it. And usually all my nonfiction now I listen to on audio. Um, So I was like, you know, I'm actually going to read this in print. I'm going to change it up. So we'll see how it goes.
0: I do the same thing. I don't know what it is about nonfiction, but maybe it's just podcasting has has caused me to think I can get all my information through audio.
1: Yeah. Well, and then you can multitask, which is kind of, you know, pleasing.
0: Yeah. One of the things that helps in the pursuit of clean (laughs) times.
1: True, true. (laughs) Well, my husband jokes that one of the main ways I like to read a print book is when I'm doing other things. I'll often be like reading a book and walking around or reading a book and kind of like making something I think there's a you know and I can read in like four minute spurts whereas he requires like you know extended periods of focus and that's how I prefer to read as well but there's something about that I find pleasing of reading and eating reading and walking around but there's only I can't read and drive so (laughs) (laughs) so there are limits
0: they strongly tell you not to do
1: yes yeah I don't know why but you know (laughs)
0: Let's talk your novel.
1: Let's talk about it.
0: Will you tell the listeners what it's about?
1: I would love to. I've perfected my description over the last, you know, 9 weeks. Um so I I'm calling it an inter intergenerational tale. It's about three generations of a California family and some of the members of the family um can travel back to moments of their own past. And it's sort of about what this gift slash curse, what its effect, what effect it has on everybody in the family.
0: Yes, and it's so that doesn't even like get into the how plotty it is. I yeah. mean this, this is a suspenseful <laughs> book as as these timelines get sort of um, twisted. As a time travel novel, aficionado. I would love to know about how you came up with your mechanic in particular and deciding your parameters and all of that.
1: Yeah. You know, I came at at this book, like all my books I'm trying to change, but I'm, I can't, I come at them really naively where I have an idea and I'm like, I'm going to do this. How hard could it be? And then I'm like, Oh, this is the hardest thing I've ever tried to write. Um, and I, I, to be honest, I don't read a lot of time travel novels and this happened with California where I didn't read a ton of post-apocalyptic narratives. And then I had this idea and then I didn't want to read other kinds as research because I feared it would actually dilute my idea or, you know, unnecessarily influence me.
0: Mm. So I get
1: a little paranoid. And so then I almost, I'm like avoiding anything related to my book. Um, So this one, you know, I love. The movie Interstellar, but it's not exactly, that's not time travel. That's, you know, wormhole time getting affected situation. But I loved, I love the idea of people interacting from different timelines and how the passage of time can be really brutal in a time travel book. Um, I also really like um Charles Yu's book, How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. And that's a father-son narrative and that was appealing to me. Um I just had an idea and I didn't really think about the apparatus or the mechanics of it when I first started and people have pointed out you know most time travel books have like you know a time travel machine and they go back in time and they can walk around and people see them all that kind of stuff my my story is more about people some people are comparing it to like astral projection which I, to be honest I don't exactly understand what that means <laughs> but it is A person who goes back in their mind, like with just their body, they are literally going back in time, but they're seeing, they can only go back to their own past and they're like haunting their own past. So they see themselves um, doing whatever they were doing, but they also can inhabit those feelings. So they feel what they felt at the moment and they kind of know what they're about to say as soon as they say it. Um, and that just kind of happened, I think, because that was always what my own desire was. Like, I've always wanted to go back in time and it's not like I want to walk around and interact. It's really that I just want to like watch almost like it's a movie, a very emotional movie, what happened at the time. So Mm -hmm. I just was like, oh, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and then over time I had to refine what the rules of the universe were. I mean, I always... Break the rules. And then, like in the eighth draft, I'm finally like, okay, fine, I'll make some rules so that the reader doesn't get frustrated. Um, but pretty early on, I had to I made a rule so that the characters who can go back in time can't go back in time um to anything recent. So two years have to have passed before the membrane thickens enough for them to move through it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was purely a plot device because I didn't want my characters going back to things that happened like a week ago to verify something. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted this feeling of it's not really, it doesn't really resonate until things are far enough in the past. You know, I don't really care about last week, but uh, two years ago, a lot of interesting stuff happened two years ago that I maybe would want to go back to. Um, So that was one thing that I recall kind of making a rule right off.
0: Yeah. I mean, It's one of those um, plot device rules that works so perfectly in-universe or it makes sense for um, uh, the emotional reality of memory. Exactly. Like that's how it really, that particular rule felt.
1: Yeah. Um, There was a draft where Ursa, who is the first person who can can time travel in the book, and she's the grandmother of the other person who can time travel in the book. And she she was always my villain. Um, But there was a time when she travel she there was a (laughs) there was a version of the book where she traveled back in time and then jumped into the phone line and like traveled through and like ended up in another place in the book and it was so cool I still am like that was a fucking awesome scene like the writing was it was so fun to write her turning into sound but my I mean it was in the book like after I sold it and my editor was like this breaks all the rules of your story. Like we can't just have people suddenly traveling phone lines. And so I was a little sad, but I totally understood what he was saying. And so actually the entire plot had to change because of that. Um, but it was the change that had to happen because it did not really fit. And it felt like the author <laughs> making a rule that fit the plot versus sort of the emotional life of the book.
0: Right. So there right. was a lot sort of, of that like, happening. Yeah pulling up of the like, hi, I wanted to move her in here.
1: Yeah. I had to have her meet her granddaughter. So this is how it happened, but it didn't work.
0: (laughs) Well, the way you figured it out worked beautifully. I must say. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) It's interesting you saying that Ursa as a villain, she starts sort of not villainous, but very quickly becomes like you really question her. Um, and it's interesting to hear that you were thinking of her as a villain right from the start.
1: Previous versions of Time's Mouth didn't, this, the version that everyone's reading now, which is the version that I like best, it <laughs> starts with Ursa. So you meet her as a teenager and you watch her, you basically get a, most of her life essentially. Um, and I think it's, I, she was always the antagonist of their villain for me, but in previous version she didn't we didn't start with her so it was a more classic tale where you started with the hero and then you met the villain um but that said i had had two books where i got a lot of feedback that some of my characters were unlikable so mm. in my first book california i did not set out to write my two main characters a husband and a wife unlikable and a lot of people hated them and that made me feel <laughs> kind of bad about myself <laughs> i was like <laughs> am i unlikable um and you realize that there's a lot of it's interesting like I don't know if it's people who read, like, I kind of, I don't judge my, the characters that I'm reading about. Like, I don't care if they're likable. That's not ever a question in my mind. I just want to know if they're interesting. Like, I might not like somebody if they're a boring character, but even a quote unquote unlikable character, I sort of love. And even if it's a person that makes bad choices, I'm like, this is fiction. This is the point of fiction. But there are some readers who, you know, want to have a beer with a character or Get upset when they make choices that put somebody in danger, whatever. So, you know, Frida in that book, she takes some Vicodin and she's pregnant, and people really were upset about that and that they thought that made her unlikable. Mm. So, the next book, I was like, I'm going to write an unlikable character. Like, I love, you know, those kind of barbed, sharp tongued, kind of like Zoe Heller, Lionel Shriver ish, like unlikable female character. So I set out to write one of those and that's woman number 17. And you know what? I was not surprised. A lot of people just didn't like her. So then when times, when I was ready to write times, I was like, I want to write like a sort of classic story in some ways where there's a character that you truly can root for. And that is Opal, the granddaughter, that is the classic likable character. And then as uh, you know, the contrast, I want this villain who's the unlikable character, who is the person that is, you know, that you are compelled by, but you don't like what she's doing. Um, and it's been interesting though, because the book starts with Ursa, depending on what your reading preferences are, I've had people tell me that Ursa is not a villain, that they empathize with her, even if she does bad things. And I think that's because. They know her so well that they kind of understand why she does what she does and they have empathy for her. And then there's people who, because we start with Ursa, believe that she's the main character of the book and they kind of are shocked that she's so unlikable. So there's some readers who don't like that or they think, you know, I had to stick with her until I realized she was supposed to be a villain, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. But if she told the whole story, they would be completely alienated. Um, so I just think it's interesting how different people react. But I did, I think I did succeed in that it's pretty clear that we have an antagonist and a protagonist.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Along with these strong characterizations, your novels also have these, this strong sense of place. I love, I'm, I went to UC Santa Cruz. Oh, okay. So I was very excited about how Santa Cruz-y this book was, (laughs) um, because I don't feel like a lot of people try to tackle how sort of bizarre that city really is. Um, What is it about California for you? I mean, you've you've been there. It's where you also call home, according to your bio. Yes. I mean, this book could have been called California. As well.
1: <laughs> that title is already taken. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, thank you um, for noticing. And I'm so glad that we have another Santa Cruz person. I My best friend went to Santa Cruz. So I grew up and she's a year older than me. So I went, you know, from high school every, for every until I was a junior when she left for college. And then every year after that, I would go once or twice a year to Santa Cruz. So I felt a little bit more familiar with it than I might have otherwise. And I was always like, so in awe of this strange place. And I, I'm sure there are there is a lot of fiction set in Santa Cruz, but I haven't read any of it. And it's not, it's not one of those overly described places, but it Mm -hmm. kind of should be because of its, you know, just the natural landscape and the kind of sociological swath of different people there. It's just a really weird place. Mm -hmm. And I do think there are places that I go to and I don't know them very well, but immediately I know I want to write about them. And I went to Ben Lomond, which is outside Santa Cruz, a few years ago. And, you know, near Ben Lomond, there's this little, like, little loop hike that's like a quarter of a mile flat where you can see redwood trees. And a lot of people take their kids there because you can say you hiked, quote unquote. But you just were among nature and it was easy. So I've been there a couple of times when my older kids were very young. And as soon as I went to Ben Lomond, I just, you know, there's like a one funky general store. There's just Mm -hmm. a, for lack of a better word, there's just a vibe there that is just like thick with some complicated feeling. And so I was like, oh God, I always call it like the black cloud is coming for me, of like something that I have to write about whether I want to or not. And that was Mm -hmm. one of those landscapes. Um, and I am from California. I was born and raised in LA and then I lived up North briefly in the Bay area. And now I'm back down in LA again. And I don't know. I mean, I think any place is interesting if you are looking closely about the specifics of it and that, you know, some, I have students are like, well, I'm from the suburbs of Connecticut and that's not that interesting. And I'm like, oh no, no, no. Every place has, you just peel it back and there's just layers of, compelling material. But I think California in particular, because it's sort of world famous and has all these mythologies about it um, that are both at once true and not true, make it a particularly ripe subject for fiction. So Mm -hmm. I have, you know, I can write characters who are of this place and, you know, too close to it to really understand its legacy, um, while also being able to kind of comment on that legacy. So the way that the people in the story in Time's Mouth, like they they seek out all these kind of like alternative ways of being. And Ursa comes from mystic Connecticut because she believes that California will have a time traveler, fellow time travelers. And then she gets mixed up in like the counterculture. But then her son, who was raised on this all-female commune outside of Santa Cruz, he doesn't really recognize that he's so steeped in like California lore. And so when he's an adult in LA seeking out his own kind of wackadoo therapy, I don't. It's like he's a he's a California cliche, but not because he's a unique individual. Um, so that's kind of fun to play with, and I just think it's a beautiful place that has all kinds of fun stuff to describe. Um, mm-hmm. And Los Angeles, in particular, to me is like a place that's people are totally nail it in terms of elements that are true about it. You know that it's like beauty conscious, health conscious. You know, maybe sometimes a little vapid. It forgets its history. And that's also totally untrue at the same time. Like, if you really come to this city and look at these particular neighborhoods, they're not like that. Just like any place is its stereotype and isn't. Um, yeah. So that's fun for me.
0: L.A. is a very strange place because of its island neighborhood sort of feeling. Yes, that You c- yes. can be right about it, but you're right about 10%. Like, you're not like... There's still 90% that's like not that.
1: Yeah. You know, I where I live, I live in Northeast LA. I live on like a dead end Canyon street that looks Mm. out on undeveloped property. It's private land that the Santa Monica Mountain Conservancy is trying to buy. But right now it's just, you know, open land that somebody wants to build like 80 houses on like really gross houses. But right now it's just a bunch of black walnut trees and raccoons and uh, coyotes and like, that's not really the LA that other people know. Like I my house is on a septic tank. Like it's almost like I live in the country, but then you drive yeah. down the hill and then you're in like LA vibes. So <laughs> I just think it's fun that I have this life, this kind of unknown Los Angeles life. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to get up in my fiction.
0: Yeah. I mean, I do think that people feel like they've got an idea of what Los Angeles is confronted by your book. It's another it's it's like, oh, there are these pockets as well. But up in Santa Cruz, you've got this <laughs> fortress uh, that they live in. I mean, like there's fortress vibes to it. Uh, yes. Yeah. And, and also California had this big sort of dystopian fortress. And I just I'm curious about your fascination with yeah, making, what is making it? Um, castles for your characters.
1: Yeah, I think I think one, I am really interested in domestic space. Like I'm, I just like people in rooms talking. Like that's my favorite. People are like, "What kind of movies do you like to watch?" I'm like, "Oh, people in rooms talking." Um, so I like that in fiction as well. But I also really do like story and plot and things that happen. And I, for me, I am attracted to those kind of like stories of enclosed communities. So in California, we have these people who you know, don't want to be found and have these spikes made of all kinds of crazy things. And, you know, they're like a kind of cult. And now in Time's Mouth, I have this group of women led by Ursa who watch her time travel. And when that's another rule of the time travel. When someone time travels, the atmosphere in the present gets changed and it feel you feel this euphoria just witnessing time travel so they watch her time travel um and i you know to be honest i don't remember i now that i'm trying to write a new book i want to try to remember those moments when you come up with ideas because i think it's kind of interesting like where do these things come from um but i think there is some sort of strange mystical element too where just you know pop something's in your mind where it wasn't before um but I had always wanted to write about a Queen Anne Victorian. I don't I don't even know why. I just love them. They actually are in L.A. There's a neighborhood in L.A. near Dodger Stadium that has a bunch of these Queen Anne Victorians. And so I was like, I'm going to write about one of these that make it huge, you know, because I can do whatever I want. I have the biggest budget ever and, you know, <laughs> just make it huge and see it kind of fall into disrepair. Um, And have it hidden in the woods. And I'm very interested in what happens when nobody's watching. And so what kind of special language arises? What rules do people create? How do they bound themselves within this atmosphere? Because I think that's really dramatic and you want to keep reading to know what happens. And at the same time, I get to describe this house and the the different rooms and the tower that Ursa doesn't let anyone into and she watches over the land. All that stuff was just really fun to write.
0: Yeah. Well, it's fun to read too. I feel like that's, okay. um, there's a one-to-one to that. You mentioned, uh, Ray's wackadoo therapy. That's <laughs> that, uh, orgone therapy, William Reich, yes. who's a real person. I, it's I, a real like person. To, I like to look these types of things up to sort of see like, oh, am I seeing a, a real concept or am I, is the author having fun? I don't really mind whatever answer I get. Yeah, I just yeah. want to know. Yeah. And then looking up what this is, that it is real, that this is all therapy that is practiced.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Probably right at this moment, somebody is doing it.
0: <laughs> um, can you talk about uh, putting this in your book and, and, yes. and how you discovered organ um, therapy? Yeah.
1: Reiki and this was something I had always wanted to write about my dad the book is dedicated to him. He I grew up with him doing this kind of therapy and um it was started by Wilhelm Reich. He was an acolyte of Freud and then kind of moved away from for, the way I have learned it and I'm by no means an expert but you know Freud is very much interested in the family dynamic and you know your mother, your father, those kind of things and Reich had this idea that it was that, but also these like larger social structures. He's kind of like pretty, he ended up, he died a quack. The FBI like took all his cockamamie ideas and burnt them and he died in prison. And he has some ideas near the end of his life that really messed with his legacy. But at the beginning, I think he had some ideas about intersectionality that were, you know, radical at the time. This idea that some of your emotional issues or your mental illness comes from being an oppressed person in society. Um, Like, especially he was sort of a Marxist and, you know, the worker has all these, you know, oppressive systems on him that doesn't make him totally free. Um, But he was also very much interested in the mind-body connection. This also makes him influential in today's model of thinking about how, why we feel the way we feel. He was all about, I mean, he gets a little out there. He all, he's all about how the orgasm is like this release, but unless you're really open to the world, you can't really experience a true release. So his therapy, you do all kinds of somatic things to get at your pain. And some of them are like screaming into a pillow or looking around the room with your eyes really wide at every single thing in the room, like going in a circle so that you're suddenly reminded like, oh, I have eyes and they see, um, And, you know, at the end of his life, he made Kate Bush's cloud busting song is about him, narrated by his son, but he made this machine that he believed could make it rain. Um, And he had this device called the orgone accumulator, where you would sit in it, it was made of fiberglass and wood. um, And you sit in it and you basically let this energy called he called biome, bions. I'm not even remembering now, like course through the body and like refill yourself. It's totally nuts. Some of it makes sense. Like, yes, actually probably screaming in a pillow does help you because you're brought back to your physical self. But do I believe that there are these like energy molecules and we can breathe them in this special machine? No, that sounds nuts. But (laughs) my, my dad, I grew up with a dad who's from, my parents are from New Jersey. They came to LA when... My mom was pregnant with me and they like the, like Ray, who's Ursa's son and Ray's partner, Cherry. Um, They were not from a cult, but they did, I think, to some extent, find like liberation in LA and were free to be like themselves in this true way. And my dad, especially like he's into astrology. He's into Reiki and therapy. He's sort of like a post hippie. Like whatever goes, like he was into Timothy Leary, you know, he's interested in these ideas um that are, you know, off the beaten path to say the least. Um, and so I always wanted to write about it. And so I always wanted to write a character who did write in therapy. One, because I don't think a lot of people know what it is. Mm-hmm. And I just think it would be interesting to think about a person who had um a lot of pain and a lot of um unresolved trauma for lack of a better word. A lot of people are saying this book is about intergenerational trauma, which it is, but that's such a catchphrase now that I kind of wince because it makes me feel like people will think the book is boring. <laughs> but, you know, he has this trauma. He grew up in an all-female cult in Santa Cruz that he can't talk about. So how do you carry that your life, how do you carry that past through your life without letting it totally overtake your entire existence? Well, this would be kind of the perfect therapy for you. You don't necessarily have to talk about your upbringing, in tra- like you would in traditional therapy. You just do all these things to bring you back to a body. Um, and so he eventually gets his own accumulator, and you know tries to find his way out of you know the pain that he's been in for since birth, basically.
0: It is so fascinating and it was one of my favorite things that I learned about and I do, I it made, I do want to sit in one now.
1: I know, you know, I tried to sit, I tried to, one, I wanted to do it earlier when I was writing and I was like, I need, I probably should sit in one of these, but, and then later that didn't happen and then I was like, oh, I should write an essay like that would be a fun essay to come out. Around my book, mm-hmm. but so my dad and I tried to find an organ accumulator because he doesn't have one and he's never sat in one. It's not <laughs> this that's is not, not my dad, dad. <laughs> um, but even his Reichen therapist didn't have access to one, like a public mm. access to one. You can Reich died in Maine and he has a house there that's his. Like you can go and visit, and okay. I think there's probably some Mainers with some organ accumulators that you could get. Otherwise, you can do what Ray did in the book and order one t- that you build yourself in your house. So my dad keeps saying he's going to get one. And then if you come to LA, you can come by and try it and see if you feel good. I mean, I imagine if you're sitting in a box and you're really practicing your breathing, I don't doubt that you emerge feeling better. Right? Yeah. So
0: it's kind of (laughs) like... I don't know. It might not be like this at all, but emergency doesn't do anything, but it does get you to drink water. Yeah. Drink more water. If you're drinking. Yeah, exactly. So like That's exactly. what you're supposed to be doing for. Yeah. So yeah. That'll exactly. probably help you a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's true. <laughs> exactly. California woman number 17 times mouth. These are very different novels. How are you? How do you look at it when you're looking at your career, when you're looking at the, the low pucky shelf? um how, how are you how are you feeling about the library
1: uh oh, weeping to myself um you know i think it's interesting when you have a when your third book comes out that's when you start to think about like well what is it i've done like because i think when your second book comes out it's just a se- it's not just a second book but you don't yet you haven't yet established certain like patterns or obsessions or ways that people will step back and say well this is this is what your books are like um you know, I think on the one hand, I've probably shot myself in the foot by every time I have like, you know, California is this post-apocalyptic book. And then woman number 17 is like a noirish story about women. And the third one is a time travel family saga, right? So they're all really different. Um, but they have some, I think there's a lot of overlapping, you know, particularly with place in California, Los Angeles, Um a lot of stuff about family, uh mm. parenting or being parent I think is huge in all three of them. Um but I also kind of like the idea of every time I'm trying something different. Uh, my teacher at in college who was like my first really serious writing mentor is Dan Sean mm-hmm. uh C H A ON who wrote um Ill Will and Sleepwalk was his recent one and I love his work and he I saw him read for um his new one Sleepwalk and he said that his goal is to write a book in a different genre every time so like the next time have it be a western and then after that a romance novel or whatever the case may be and I thought that was a really fascinating project and I wouldn't go that far one because I'm he's a much more vigorous reader of different kinds of genres than i am um but i do love the idea of always looking for a new form to tell the story um so i also really gravitate towards jennifer egan's work for the same reason like you know she has the keep which is her gothic novel she has her historical novel she has her story linked stories that go in different forms for every chapter um, so I think that's exciting. And there is a through line through her work as well. Like she still comes back to the same themes every time. So yeah, I I don't know. I mean, my I have two books that I'm kind of working on simultaneously right now, which also cool. means not, not really working on either of them, uh, <laughs> but they're both so different. And yet they're also circling these ideas of place, parenting, ambition seems to be the next theme that I'm maybe thinking about.
0: Mm. Um,
1: But they're both really different in terms of their form. Um, So we'll see. Who knows?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Have you gotten the, have you, now that you're done with your time travel novel, have you read some time travel that you were putting off or was it never really?
1: I, I, I have some, what happens is I don't want to read it. And then I'm so sick of it by the end. (laughs) It's like, I never want to. Yeah think about time travel again. And I keep joking, like if I, if I could time travel, I would go back in time and never write a time travel novel because mm-hmm. they're so impossible. Like your brain kind of melts trying to figure out the puzzle of them. And this book started out, you know, in a non-linear way, which a lot of time travel novels do. And then I pieced it back together chronologically and I liked that in the end, but my brain almost broke trying to make it work. Um, I re- the only two that I've read recently are um. I read Emma Straub's book this time tomorrow mm-hmm. and I read sea of tranquility. Emma oh and yeah. John Mandel's books were books by two people. I know who <laughs> wrote, started finished and published their books within the time frame. Cause my book took like seven years to write. So I was mm. like, one, I was like, screw you guys. You, you, <laughs> you wrote them so fast and they're great. And I'm lucky for you that you're smart enough to do this right. The first time. Um but I also was like, I don't want to be influenced by them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah. um, but it was fun to read them. It was interesting to see. They were quite different from mine. Emma's had some interesting like overlaps with mine because mine was also father, daughter and also or and also had like city stuff. Hers is New York, mine is LA. So that was kind of cool. Emily's I didn't think had really any connection to mine. So that, you know, but I thought it was cool. Her device was interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know, do you have any others to recommend me that I should read next?
0: Oh, I mean, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I was thinking about um ways to not do time travel. Uh, and I was, and how like method doesn't matter as much as people think it does. Mm. Um, You were talking about how people were like, oh, you people usually have a machine or something that makes them for, to you. And it made me think of Timeline, Michael Crichton's um oh. time travel novel, where he tries to do, what he did with Jurassic Park where he was like, he spends, you know, a hundred pages of Jurassic Park being like, this is how you would clone dinosaurs. This is yeah. how it would, if you were going to do it. Yeah. This is my magic way that I've made up. And timeline's the same way. He's like, if you were going to time travel, this is the, I've figured out the scientific way that it would probably happen. And he spent so much time with it that by the time the book actually starts, it's not as interesting as the rest. Yeah. But um, I will recommend Daryl Brock. Yeah. Um, If I never get back, which is a great one.
1: Is that a recent book?
0: No, and it might even be out of print. uh, so, But I think it's available online pretty easily. And it's about a guy, a sports writer, who ends up on a train and gets off the train. And it's like an early American baseball game.
1: Ooh, that's fun.
0: And, uh, you know, he... One of the first scenes, he asks for a glove and everybody makes fun of him because <laughs> you know, no one's wearing a glove. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's one of those great, I mean, the, the fish out of water um, stuff for, for time travel in particular. Yeah. Uh, and then um, Rebecca Stead wrote a middle grade novel um, uh-huh. called When You Reach Me that won the Newberry. It was a huge, enormous hit um, that has the, one of the most fun time travel um, mechanics too. And a great little puzzle. But speaking of puzzles, speaking of mind-melting puzzles, you yes. recommended a mind-melting puzzle of a novel. <laughs> I um, sure did. The Possibilities by Yale Goldstein Love. Um, do you want to tell, what what made you want to um, recommend it to me?
1: Well, Yale is actually a friend of mine. Um, and interestingly, we were in a writing group together. I didn't read The Possibilities, but she read a very, very, very early versions or sections of... Times mouth. Mm. Um, and when she gave me her book, it hadn't, you know, she hadn't yet sold it, but it was pretty finished. It was a complete, almost like perfect draft that she gave me. Um, and she needed a title. And it, originally it was called like Hannah 43, mm-hmm. or whatever the. And I was like, that's like too sci fi for this book. It's going to set up. So I actually recommended the title. So I feel very proud. Oh. <laughs> um, but I thought it would be interesting to read. Um, I teach at Caltech. Um, one class a year, and I'm actually bringing Yael out to be a speaker. So next week I have to talk to her. So I hadn't read the book in its published form, and I needed to reread it. So I thought, well, why don't I bring you along for the ride, and we could read it together? And I also think it has so many interesting parallels to my book, but it's also wholly itself, and you know, very different. But I think it's cool. It's an interesting pairing. Like people have read them together and been like, wow, you guys were definitely, you know, meeting each other in the membrane, <laughs> and, you know, oh. feeling the same stuff.
0: Yeah. I mean, I would say that, um, time's mouth is a fantasy of motherhood in some ways of like being able to go back to specific memories of like, oh, how great would it be to go back to this specific day and, and experience this time again with, with my yeah. child. Yeah. And the possibilities is a full on nightmare. Of yeah. <laughs> What if I can't count on my kid to be where I left them last?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's a good way to put it. So Hannah, the main character, she, her son, I think is eight months old in the book. And she has, she had a traumatic birth where her son, you know, almost died and she keeps seeing a version of him where he's dead but everyone's telling her, oh, that was just like a figment of your imagination or your worst fear coming true. And she spent the first eight, eight months of his life, like just really kind of postpartum anxiety, like very unsettled. It's it's gotten so bad that her husband, Adam, wants is gonna leave her for it. And when the book opens, she's just left her therapist's office. Um and she has but she left her car keys i think right in mm-hmm. the in the therapist's office so she just leaves her son like on a parking like right outside the like on a little staircase landing and just to run up a flight of stairs really fast grab the keys because otherwise you know he's in this car seat it's such a pain in the ass and when she goes back to look for him he's gone mm-hmm. and then it turns out that he is in the multiverse and she has to you know surf these different possible lives. And I think it very well captures that feeling of when you're a new parent, like you get worried that something terrible could happen. And this is the idea, well, there's all these different realities that branch off where something terrible can happen.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: And I think it's one of the reasons I'm bringing her to Caltech is that I teach creative writing to scientists. And this is a book that uses science and fiction in kind of interesting ways um, that she could talk about to them and kind of connect with them on that level.
0: One thing that I really loved actually is that the narrator of the book herself is a light science fiction writer or yes. uses science fiction in her own novels, but she doesn't quite understand the, yeah. the science that she uses. She doesn't understand it some and her husband really helps um, because he's a, he, he's a professor, um, a teacher. Yeah. And, one thing that was breaking my heart while I was reading this book was that like in all the other universes she has this really strong marriage they love each other he's so supportive they've got this great they they this kid that they're co-parenting so well but the one that the prime narrative one they're in such disarray and they're having such a hard time with each other it's so um i i was I was sad. I was keep, it was one of the things that really keeps you turning pages is that you're like, come on, you guys.
1: Yeah, You can do it. What's really interesting is that's the main thing that her editor had her work on was in the version that I read in the multiverse. (laughs) The the other version of this book is that she's not having issues with her husband Hmm. that he hasn't, if I remember correctly, he hasn't kind of issued her this, like, we're going to break up over this. Um, So there wasn't that to read to, but I agree that, you know, he's leaving her and then they kind of, there is this heartbreaking thing where he doesn't get why she is the way she is. And she's starting to understand why he has, you know, desired all this kind of order, these napping rules, all these things, because he came from a, his life, he needed to, you know, assert that it was and a good life despite the fact that he was only raised by his mom and you know it was hard for them but he still had a perfect childhood he wants to bring that order to his marriage and to his life with his baby which can feel really chaotic um but the idea of her like trying to get through to him is really moving i think and what kind of like propels the story forward um my i my favorite i think because i lived in Berkeley for a few years. I I feel like similarly, I don't see a lot of fiction that's about Berkeley, contemporary mm-hmm. Berkeley. Like she gets so many things right. There's like the older women who are like frowning at her over her and her baby, which I was like that is 100% true. There are all these like 75-year-old Berkeley hippies who are really judgmental and will just give you a dirty look. I call it the Berkeley stink eye. It was in the book. I love these. She has this pair of birders um, Mm -hmm. who one of them ends up being this famous scientist. Um, And I loved the, the perception of that character. And then her house in the Berkeley Hills, which takes on this kind of she thinks of it as, of course, I like the fortress house, but she she bought this house with her book money. She's a successful author and it has been this place of comfort for her. She loves it. It's high up in the hills. It has this beautiful garden, but it starts to take on like kind of a menacing vibe mm-hmm. as she can't find her son or the different realities that she inhabits. I thought it was really, it felt very powerful to me.
0: Yeah it's it's extremely fast it is like a real like page turner like it's a quick I don't know I was I was fully wanting it's it's classic what you want the mom to get back with her kid like you want that all to be to be set but of course like the the fun is in these little um possibilities when she's really riding them and she you get to see that just these little um sequences like she is somewhat of a She's not a horror writer. She's never written anything scary before in this one universe. And she's like trying to figure out her like book tour that she seems to be on. Um, So there's that fun sort of quantum leap almost um, quality to it as she tries to figure out like, okay, what are the parameters of this universe?
1: Yeah, I love this idea that if certain things had happened to her differently she would end up wearing Jimmy Choo high heels mm-hmm. and just this idea of like it seems so superficial and yet you're like you're right because if i think about it to myself i'm like i am not a person who would ever buy those shoes what would have to occur in my life to move me towards that particular identity i thought it was both like funny like there's a little wink wink quality about it but so like deeply true mm-hmm. um that she wouldn't she what she write about what she writes about is a f- is a product of what happened to her in her life so if different things happened to her in her life she would write different things and she would be wearing these fancy high heels yeah i loved it yeah
0: there's also something interesting that she does with the outsider confirmation um of like because for a book like this sometimes it's more hallucinatory it's more like Samantha Schweblin fever dream like mm you're not sure if she's experiencing the reality that everyone else is experiencing. And maybe the, her kid is only disappearing to her. Um, But then her husband is confirming that he has this reality too. And is going Mm -hmm. through this like weird forgetfulness thing. And and then that becomes the ticking clock. Um, And then your book has outsider confirmation in that interesting way of the, of the, everybody witnessing the, time travel and feeling this amazing thing. Was that something at the beginning? I I realized I wanted to ask you about that. Um, the the penumbra of magic.
1: Yeah. You know, I always had, I wanted to have echoes in my story. Um, so I wanted when Opal time travels, her friend Fab is witnessing her. And when Ursa time travels, the mamas are also witnessing her and feeling this euphoria, but I, in later revisions, I definitely upped it so that he would they would, the women watching would always feel it more strongly and that it would have these, I thought it's more dramatic if there are real world consequences. So like you said, like confirmation that something is actually happening, it's not just in their mind. And then like this other idea of, well, it would be great if you, as a mother, to be able to hold your child as an infant again, but what are the ramifications of that? How does it, how does it change you as a mother? Does it make you a better mother or a worse mother? And so that's sort of a, a, a way in scene to show the consequences. I When I was rereading this, I don't know if I didn't remember it or if it changed, but there's one point in the book where Hannah needs to surf these possibilities to basically find her son. And she does so in a sort of mental way where she opens herself up to it and she's suddenly in her mind going and she goes back to her mom's group. And she's like, you guys, I just need to do this thing. I need to like communicate with my mom in this way. And the leader's like, this is crazy. We're not doing this. And all the moms are like, whatever, let's do it. And they, and it's very similar to my book, but I don't think Yael had ever read those scenes in my book. So it was just like, we were, you know, the collective subconscious where these women are holding her hands and like letting her go wherever she goes. They're not feeling euphoric when she comes to, they're like, Holy shit, what just happened? Um, but it is a similar situation. And I kind of love that because I'm her friend. So it was like, oh, we're both into the same idea.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, even just the sort of um, the sequences of time travel versus the sequences of u- universal travel, like exactly how she like opens up her mind. There is some. Really yeah, interesting... there is.
1: There is an echo there for sure.
0: But also for all of that, it's remar- it's constrained. Um, it's remarkably constrained. Because, you know, you could go into everything, everywhere, all at once route yeah. and truly go nuts with these possibilities. But she keeps them to, like, decisions that, that the character would have made and, and how that branching decision tree happens, which is very satisfying.
1: Yeah, you know, I think one of the things the book does really well is, and it was a risk because I think it could make some people who haven't had this experience not want to go all the way there. But when she makes it so much about the baby, like there's a lot of breast milk in the book. (laughs) And I was like, well, I liked it because I breastfed my kids. And I just think it's like fictively interesting. I think even if I had bottle fed them or not, had a kid at all, I think it's just like fictively fascinating to be like, oh, my milk dried up when I was totally detached from my kid. And my breasts were like filling with milk in this like cosmic way. I just think it's a cool idea for like cause and effect. But I did wonder like, would that make some readers be like, oh, this book, what is this book? But I always like a book that kind of is exactly what it needs to be. And one of the things that works for me in the multiverse part is like it is very focused on the baby and when she really like tips into what he needs and where he wants to where he is and also she follows these dark feelings that she realizes are connected to the baby i thought that was just sort of it was revelatory plot wise for me and i just thought oh this focuses the book mm-hmm. um and i did, i was like are other people going to be as into this as i am but and then i was like i don't care about other people <laughs> it's me I, i'm the only reader here
0: <laughs> yeah the 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 breast milk stuff reminded me it made me think of um helen Phillips' novel from a few years ago oh, yes, the, need, the need yes i loved that book there is also it's that's also very much a um a plot device as much as mm-hmm. it is um as it is in this you know yes it's physical, but it's also literally like driving how how the novel ends.
1: Yes, true. Um,
0: but the yeah, it, and it's also I mean I would say like if if the possibilities, I think those two books could really go um, could be interesting to read back to back because the possibilities is much more. It's not hallucinatory, mm-hmm. and the, the need very much is like mm-hmm. a, like you're very much in sort of a fever dream.
1: Um, yeah, that's true. I love that book.
0: I'm so glad that you, um, recommended the possibilities. Um, it's, it was on my stack. Um, and. Oh, perfect. I love, I love that we, you, you took something off my stack and it was something that you were needing to reread again. So yeah.
1: See the universe, I'm so glad the universe the provides.
0: <laughs> it does. It really does. So we obviously recommend that do Let's, uh, let's move into recommendations. Yes. Do you have something you want to recommend?
1: What do you have right now that you want to recommend?
0: I'll recommend actually another Rebecca Stead book. Um, ever since I loved When You Reach Me, mm-hmm. um, I have kept up with her and just read all of her books because they're always she, really fun.
1: Is she always right? Young adult,
0: always middle reader. Okay. Um, and this newest one, um, she wrote with Wendy Mass, and it's called The Lost Library. And it's sort of oh. about a magical realism um, little free library. I don't know if you've ever seen. Those oh yes, of course. around, um, but if it it's narrated by a cat that sort of the has decided that this little free library is theirs um <laughs> and is the guardian of it um you're a ghost of the original library and then a curious boy who's sort of having an adventure about that brings these things together um it's also as intricate as um when you reach me was it was a very very oh. satisfying um exciting book. I always love returning to Rebecca Stead. Lyra and Spire is also really good, but um, The Lost Library is uh, is really really wonderful.
1: And middle grade, what how, like what are we talking? Did you read this in an hour?
0: Um, no, a couple hours.
1: <laughs> okay. I'm yeah. always curious about the, fra- the 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 middle grade category because I feel like it does sort of I mean, I have a almost 8-year-old and I have a 12-year-old who both could read middle grade, twelve, but the twelve-year-old is more moving towards
0: Yeah, once to read you, know, old. you he, always wanna read. He
1: reads age. adult books, he reads yeah. YA books, and he still reads middle grade.
0: Yeah, I mean I I loved it. I can imagine an eight-year-old or a twelve-year-old liking it. Yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> it's fun uh, for all ages. Okay. Fun cool. for
0: all ages. It's um it's a four-hour audiobook, So if that gives you any idea. Oh,
1: okay, okay, okay. Oh, that's a nice link. Um, I'm currently reading two books one uh, I'm reading I wouldn't say I'm enjoying it I'm reading it for research which I don't usually do it's Ramona have you ever read Ramona by Helen Hunt Jackson no my uh, dog's know, the, name is Ramona well, There so you, go. So you <laughs> yeah. well I think it's a really fascinating it's more a fascinating idea than an actual reading experience um, it was published and I want to say in the 1880s Um Helen Hunt Jackson was known as an activist for Native Americans and had written with um, Abbott Kinney, who, you know, founded Venice in LA. Um, They wrote this like polemic tract kind of like called like on the rights of the Native American sort of book about the mission Indians. And nobody wanted to read it because it's just like boring political tract. Mm -hmm. Um, So what she decided to do was write a romance novel with the Native American ideas, like hidden inside of it. So I think this is really interesting. And it was a very popular book. It's still in print. There's a place in California where they do a play based on this novel and they like reenacted it and native Californians are in the play, um, along with Anglos and, you know, non-native people.
0: Is it in Ramona?
1: (laughs) It, It is named, no, Ramona... Is, I, is the plot is the play named Ramona I don't remember
0: I was just I just know there's a city so yeah that's... it's not
1: it's not in Ramona no there's <laughs> a woman named Ramona in the book who's half Anglo and half um native and cool. you know she falls in love with a native man who comes to her you know ranch and etc cetera, etc cetera. um it's kind of slow it's not it's not you know it's no withering heights it's not like riveting to read like Anna Karenina is, you know, it's, it's a little like plotting, but I'm still kind of plotting through it. Cause I think it's interesting as an idea of like how books come to be And Helen Hunt Jackson is really interesting to me. So that's one book, if you're looking for a historical story. Um, and then I'm reading right now for once I'm reading a, I never read a memoir, but I got, okay. I, this was an another impulse buy. I bought, I was signing books like stock at book soup where i used to work and they have such great piles of books at the register that are fiction when you turn back but when you're waiting in line you're just like faced with all this nonfiction. and i pulled up leg have you read this book it's called the subtitle is the story of a limb and the boy who grew from it by greg marshall and has a great cover this like classic drawing of a man um and i just love the title I was like, Leg, what is this book? And it's about a kid who grew up in the 80s. He's a gay kid who came from this big family in Utah, but they were Catholic, not Mormons. (laughs) And he had cerebral palsy, but his parents never told him. They just told him he had tight tendons. Mm. Um, So it's about and he didn't learn he had cerebral palsy till he was 30 and doing like a health insurance claim. Um but it's a very funny story about his wild family and growing up queer closeted in the 80s in Utah and having this disability that he didn't really realize was a disability. Wow. Um and it's really funny and I bought it on a lark and I'm really enjoying it. It's the voice is great. He's it's very, you know, it's just a pleasure. And because I don't read a lot of memoirs, I'm not coming with any like preconceived ideas of what its formal shape will be. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I have no idea how to write a memoir. So (laughs) whatever you're going to do, just bring it to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love the big family memoir. I, I I I remember Loving Running With Scissors by Augustine Burroughs. Yes, yes. It's in that same vein. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, this, I just read a chapter. It's about how his brother discovered that like the Brookstone massager could be used as a masturbation tool and how like all these boys were coming down to the basement and like going into the guest room to use the massager for a little while. Like, it's just like nutty stories about this great family. It's very funny.
0: (laughs) Wow. That sounds, yeah, that sounds great.
1: Yeah. You should have him on your show. He's probably a character.
0: (laughs) It's a good idea. Thank you.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, well, this has been such a blast. Oh, the final recommendation is, of course, to go pick up your copy of *Times Mouth*. Yes, right do now. it. <laughs> um, we both vociferously recommend it. It's just a, especially if you love time travel novels, it is another great um, book in the in the realm. And if you don't love time travel novels, it's also not very much like a time travel novel. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you, um, thank you so much. I really, it's very special to me that you liked it so
0: um and thank you for hanging out i hope we can cross paths again soon
1: yes thank you so much